Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Today we read some of the last words of Paul because he is about to be executed. We, we know that from history. This is the last letter that he has written, and now we're coming to the conclusion of that letter today and next Sunday. In verse 6, in a moment I'll read, but it's interesting. Have you ever thought about what you would like to have on your headstone or your monument or grave marker? I've, I've read some funny ones in my life. One out of Mississippi, Lee County, Mississippi. Once I wasn't, then I was, now I ain't again. <laughs> I told Laura what I want on mine. Here lies the shell of a man, the nuts gone to heaven. One lady got really mad that her husband didn't leave all the money to her in, her, in the will. So she ran to the tomb, to the uh, place where they make the monuments and said that she wanted to change something. And he said, well, ma'am, it's too late. I've already, I've already chiseled it out. It says, rest in peace, and it can't be changed. And she said, well, then you put under it till we meet again. <laughs> One of the things that was asked by John Wesley many years ago, he asked to explain the strength, the spiritual strength of the early Methodists. And he said, our people die well. Look at verse 6. Paul said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There are a lot of things in life that you don't get to decide. You don't get to decide where or when you were born or who you were born to. You don't get to decide how tall you're going to be. You don't get to decide the color of your eyes or the DNA, the makeup of your DNA. You, you don't even get to decide how you're going to die. But there are life's important questions that you do get to decide. One of them is, what Lord am I going to love? The next question is, what life am I going to live? And however you answer those first two questions will determine the third question, which is what legacy am I going to leave behind? It's easy to start stuff, isn't it? One man was trying hypnosis to help him quit smoking. And his friend said, do you think it's going to work? And he said, sure, it worked the last time I tried it. It's easy to start, but it's hard to finish. 
Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, concluded that there were about a hundred detailed biographies in the Scripture. And he noted that two-thirds of those did not finish well. They ended poorly. They either turned to immorality, they drifted away from God, or they ended their life in a backslidden condition. But Paul was not one of those guys. Paul did finish well. He had been an evangelist for over 30 years, and now because of his preaching the gospel, he was arrested. He's in a prison in Rome, and he knows that he's been uh, unjustly condemned by Nero. He's going to die and yet he's still writing Timothy in this last letter to encourage him, and now he's coming to the end of it, and he begins to talk about his own life. You'll first notice he gives an acknowledgement of his final days. I am already being poured out. The word poured out is the word spendomai. We get our word spend. You spend your money. But did you know that you are spending your life? You can't save it. You can't store it up. You can either spend it wisely or foolishly. But you don't have any choice. You are spending your life. And the way that we spend our days will determine the legacy that we live. Paul is saying, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Testament days, there was a ritual that accompanied certain sacrifices. The law mandated that when a worshiper came and brought a sacrifice, some of it was put on the altar, some of it was actually given to the priest. But after the burnt offering was given, they many times would pour a drink offering They wouldn't give any of it to the priest. It was all poured out on the altar. And when you poured the wine on the hot coals, it would immediately steam and rise and have a sweet aroma. And basically, it was a symbol that said, I joyfully give all that I have to you, Lord, that it may be pleasing to you. If you recall, wine was one of the symbols of joy in the Old Testament. And if this was a way of saying, I gladly give all that I have to you, Lord. All that I have, I gladly pour it out to you. And that's what Paul was saying. I'm already being, my life is being spent. I'm being poured out. I'm offering everything I have, God, to you. And then he says, the time of my departure is at hand. Isn't that interesting? It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament, and the word is analysis. That's the Greek word, analysis. We get our word, analysis, from that, which means to unloose or to untie. And when we analyze something, we untie it, separate it into its various parts. And that's the way Paul pictures death. He says that death is really a departure of the soul and spirit away from the body. Death is never looked at as the cessation or ceasing to exist. It's simply a departure. We use that word a lot. You have a departure time when you fly on an airplane or you're going someplace. You have a departure time. This is a very beautiful word. It's so picturesque because it was used in so many different ways. A prisoner would use this word when he had been freed from prison and the shackles were taken off of him. 
A farmer would use this word when the yoke was taken off the oxen and the oxen were allowed to rest. A soldier would use this word when the war was over, the tent would be taken down, and you were headed home. It was also used of a man or woman carrying a heavy burden, and they would release it. Sometimes a sailor would use it when it would untie the ship and sail out of the harbor. Paul said, I'm going home. My friend, you could almost hear God saying, my friend, it's time to lay your burden down. It's time to come home, and we're all going to face that departure one day. And for Paul, it was like setting sail or breaking camp or laying down his heavy burden and finally going home to be with the Lord. He is going to be promoted. He's going from a Roman prison to a heavenly palace. I call that a promotion, don't you? He says it's at hand, it's near, it was at his door. And so he simply viewed death as going home. I've told you many times, every funeral I speak of, that when Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to depart, I'd rather depart and be at home with the Lord, to be present with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. The word absent means to leave, to immigrate. Present is the word for homeland. I'm going to leave and go home. Now, Paul then gives a reason he can feel that way. He gives an assessment of his faithful dedication. He looks to the past. This really explains why he's ready. He says, my life's not been easy, but it's been worth it. And he uses a couple of athletic terms to talk about what he has done in life. First, he says, I've lived a disciplined life. In conflict, I fought the good fight. The word fought and fight come from the word agon. We get our word agony. You know what agony is? Some of you look like you're in agony right now. It means, literally means conflict. I want to tell you the moment that you follow Jesus, obviously you are a saint, you're set apart for him, but more than that, you're drafted as a soldier. You're in a war. The three enemies, the world, the flesh, and Satan. The world will try to control you. The flesh will try to corrupt you. Satan will condemn you. But when you give your life to Jesus, you don't become just a saint. You become a soldier. And the good fight really is translated the good struggle. The idea here is not of armed conflict, but it's an effort, a struggle, a strife. His contention, he doesn't mention any names here because he's not talking about one person. He's talking about his life and ministry was a struggle. It was hard. There's nothing easy about living the Christian life. At least in this country, we have the freedom. But Paul, simply stating that he's kept his hand to the plow, he did not quit. Dorothy Sue of Columbus, Ohio, said when a preschooler named Denny came to class one morning, he was bubbling over with excitement. He said, we had a t-ball game, and we won our game. And she asked, well, Denny, did you get any hits? And he said, yes, ma'am, and I got some scratches too. <laughs> well, you're going to get some hits and some scratches when you live for the Lord. 
Amazing story, true story. I looked it up. A Japanese soldier by the name of Haru Onada was stationed in the Philippines on the island of Lubang in World War II. He was given the orders that no matter what happened, he was to stay and fight until the very end of his life. The Japanese surrendered September the 2nd, 1945, but he didn't know it. And for the next 29 years, he kept fighting. He lived in the jungle. He would raid villages for rice and meat. He would kill people who thought he thought were the enemy combatants. People tried to tell him that the war was over, but he did not believe them, thinking that it was a trick by the Allies. And finally, they found his commanding officer. And in 1974, went to the island of Lubang, found him, and the, and the uh, officer, commanding officer, decommissioned him, I guess is the right word. When they took him back to Japan, the press was kept asking him, what were you thinking for those past 30 years? He said, I was just carrying out my orders. Well, folks, that's what we're supposed to do for all of our life, to live for him. There's a conflict. It doesn't get any easier. Y'all know who Johnny Erickson Tata is, the lady that became a a quadriplegic uh, when she dove into water that was too shallow and her neck was broken. And so she's lived in a wheelchair most of her life. She faces a physical battle every day. But she said this, This is the only time in history when I get to fight for God. This is the only part of my eternal story when I'm actually in the battle. Once I die, I'll be in celebration mode and in a glorified body and a whole different set of circumstances. But this is my limited window of opportunity, and I'm going to fight the good fight for all I am worth. So the implication is clear to Timothy. Don't you quit just because it gets hard. Paul also lived a determined life of consistency. I have finished the race or the course. The term struggle, I mentioned to you, agon was used to describe the action of wrestlers sometimes. Well, here the term race or course, dramas, has been used for a foot race. And Paul is claiming victory not because he was the fastest, not because he passed a bunch of people across the finish line, but the fact that he finished the race. You and I are given a course to run. Did you know that? You have a path that God's laid out for you. You have a race that you are in. You have a course. And God's not judging. Not, he's not looking at how fast you're running it. He's looking how consistently and if you're going to finish. For those of you who ran track many years ago, Did you ever hear anybody winning the 95-yard dash (laughs) or the 99-meter dash? No. The reason is if you don't finish, you don't win. 
I've met a lot of 95-yard dash Christians. I call them used to Christians. They used to be committed to the church. They used to serve in the church. They used to give to the church. They used to read their Bible. They used to share their faith. They used to be involved. But they quit. You may have heard the term Mickey Thompson was one of the most recognized names in auto racing. His team built the fastest cars on the track. He was the first American to break the 400-mile-an-hour speed limit. That's how fast I drive, by the way. (laughs) His cars could fly, but not one of those cars ever brought Thompson a checkered flag. And the reason is, even though his cars took the lead, they never could finish because they broke down. Engines blew, gearboxes broke, carburetors failed. His cars were good starters. They just weren't good finishers. I've known some people like that. It's easy to start. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to start something? How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you start a diet on Monday morning and you make it till lunch? In the 1990s, there was a Division II NCAA National Championship cross-country race. It was held in Riverside, California, but a bizarre twist of events took place. There were 128 runners, best runners in the country, running the 10,000-meter course. Mike Del Cavo was one of those runners. About three miles into the race, he was in the middle of the pack, but the leaders of that pack missed a turn. Del Cabo cried out, hey, you're going the wrong way, but they didn't listen, and only four people followed Del Cabo and went the right way. The other 120-some-odd went, missed the turn. Well, not long after that, Del Cabo and these other four met the pack again because it came back on the trail they were on or the path that they were on, but that other pack had cut off about a half mile of race, but Del Cabo and his runner and the runners that went with him were in the middle of the pack again. And that was bad enough. But the final blow came when, because so many runners had gone the wrong way, the officials actually changed the official court course route to accommodate their error. So when Mike Del Cabo finally crossed the finish line, He was number 103 out of 128. They asked him some questions, and Del Cavo's competitors, he said, well, they asked Del Cavo, and he said, my competitors thought it was funny that we went the right way. I want to tell you something. We live in a world where the majority of people have missed the turn. And there are a few people who are staying on the right race, the right course, and I can promise you one thing, that when we stand before the judge one day, he's not going to officially change the course because the majority of people went that way. He's laid out a narrow path, and we're to stay on it. If you're a serious runner, you may recognize the name 
John Bingham, or the Penguin, as he's called. He's both a runner and someone who knows how to motivate others to finish marathons. What's his secret? He said, as I stand at the starting line, I know that somewhere out there is a finish line. Well, folks, I want to tell you, the path that you're on, there's a finish line out there. We just don't know where it is. And we don't know when you're going to cross it, but I know it's out there because it says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. You've got an appointment with death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that, that we don't know when it's going to be, where it's going to be, how it's going to be. But I can promise you this, you're not going to miss it. And you can't postpone it. And the implication, Timothy, you need to keep on running your race. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. I've seen so many people sprint for a little while. And then as soon as it got tough, they said, I'm done this. I'm done with this. You see, finishing is the victory. It's not so much about how fast you go or how many people you pass along the way, but finish well. And then Paul mentions a dedicated life of commitment. I have kept the faith. The word kept, same word used for a soldier, armed soldier guarding a, a, a post against the enemy. And the word faith, Paul is referring to the sum total of Christianity, to all that he has been given. He's always given a defense of the gospel, and Jesus Christ is the only way by grace. For example... To the Galatians, he guarded the gospel by saying Jesus Christ alone through faith instead of the works religion that they were trying to put out. To the Colossians, he guarded the gospel of Christ alone and that he is the God-man instead of those who tried to water down who Jesus was. In his first letter to Timothy, he guarded the gospel to Scripture alone against the false gospel according to human wisdom. In all of his writings, it's clear that his gospel is always for God's glory. And you can honestly say and humbly say that Paul kept the faith. He stayed with it. He kept it true. And when other people fell away, Paul preached the word. When the world was against him, Paul paid no attention. When it would have been easy to trim his message to save his own life, he didn't compromise. He didn't preach what people wanted to hear. He kept the faith. He's defended it against the attacks of the Gnostics, the Judaizers, and the philosophers of Athens. And that is our job, to keep the faith, to keep the truth. Amen. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, the chief danger of the 20th century when he was writing this will be religion without holiness, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. And that is the, the, the message that is being preached so many places today. Paul's saying, Timothy, you guard the same faith. He never stopped fighting. He never stopped running. He never stopped believing. And because of that, there's some good news here. You see his anticipation of future delight. 
Finally, verse 8. Finally. It's one of your favorite words. You love it when a preacher says, finally. <laughs> I know. Been there, done that. Do that. I haven't said that yet. I'm reading it right here. Sometimes you use that word when you've been on a long trip. You've been driving all day. You pull up in your driveway. You may not say it, but you think it. Finally. Finally, I'm home. Paul's saying, what remains for me? What's next? I'm standing at the judge's stand. What's next is the crown, the Stephanus crown, the garland of oak leaves given to the winner. But he said, it's the crown of righteousness. A more precise translation is the crown which is righteousness. Now, Paul doesn't speak of a reward that only he will get for his excellent and impeccable service because he says, and all who love his appearing will get this. You ever thought about a crown you're going to receive? Teacher was talking about this passage in a Sunday school class to children. And she asked the question, who do you think will get the biggest crown? And they looked at each other, kind of puzzled. And finally, finally, one little boy said, the one that's got the biggest head. <laughs> <laughs> do you realize that when you turn to God, you ask God to forgive you, you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, conquering death, and you, placed your, you place your faith in Jesus, that God imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus. Amen. Okay, you're, you're covered. That's why when God looks at you, you, he looks at you justified, just as if I'd never sinned. I'm, it's not because of my own merit. It's because of what Jesus did and what God imputed to me. But you and I still live in a cursed, sinful flesh. Still struggle, don't we? And so we're not ever going to know the final righteousness until we are giving and given a new body. It's perfect. No sin. No corruption. No pain. Paul said... There's laid up for me the crown that is righteousness, holiness. And, and he said, and the righteous judge, Christus, the righteous judge is going to give it to me. He'd been unjustly condemned by Nero, been lied about, and Nero was killing Christians. He said, but the righteous judge is going to give it to me. Now, standing before the judge may make some of you nervous, but you don't have any reason to be nervous. You know why? Because Paul also wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're not going to stand condemned. In fact, you're going to stand before the Lord righteous and clean and forgiven and you were made that way by the death of Jesus on the cross. 
and his resurrection. And when you trusted him, God imputed to him, you his righteousness. Read Romans 3, 21 to 26. And the hope of meeting the Lord, the righteous judge, who will welcome us into heaven is based on his perfect righteousness, who has helped us run the race with endurance. What does it mean to love his appearing? to all those who have loved his appearing. Well, first of all, it indicates those who really believe he will return. Now, there are a lot of people today who believe that the Bible tells us that he's going to return and that we preach that, but they don't necessarily believe it. In the days of Noah, Noah kept warning people, there's a, the world, there's a flood coming, the, the, the judgment is coming, and the people believed that Noah believed that, but they didn't believe it. So they just went on about life normally, not worrying a thing about it. I'm assuming that those of you who have assembled here today really believe he's coming. Second, it indicates those who actually desire for him to return. It's one thing that, to believe that Christ will certainly come again, but do you desperately want him to come? I'm going to tell you daily, I'm getting more and more ready for him to come. The third, it indicates those who prepare for his return. You're prepared. If you know Jesus Christ, Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, 1 to 13, he said that people would be prepared when the bridegroom comes. You confess your sin, you repent, and you believe in Jesus Christ, and you're prepared. And fourth, it indicates a lack of longing for this present world. The more this world goes down the tubes, the more I'm ready to get off of it. Now, notice the implications, and you got to write quickly here. He, Paul said, first of all, I have a reservation. It's laid up for me. It's stored. Some of you are getting ready to go on vacation. Some of you look like you're on vacation. <laughs> Probably you have a reservation somewhere. You called and made a reservation. How do you get a reservation in heaven? Jesus puts it there. Guess where it's written? In the Lamb's book of life. You've got a reservation in heaven because of Jesus. Paul said, there's a glorification coming, the crown of righteousness. I'm going to be given a new body. There's a, a glorification. I've mentioned that. He said, and notice the presentation. The Lord, the righteous judge, will give it. In the ancient days, in the Olympic Games, and when you're going to win this this crown of uh, a garland of oak leaves. Well, that sure wasn't very valuable. They didn't get a gold medal. Just like cut flowers in your home, they're beautiful for a while, but then they wither. Well, what made that crown so wonderful? Well, first of all, it represented victory, but also the one who presented it to you. And he said, the righteous judge is going to give it to me. Can you imagine seeing Jesus for the first time? A man who was dying, had a terminal illness, talking to his doctor. He said, can you tell me what it's going to be like 
What's going what's to happen to me? What's going to be like? And the man was a Christian, but he was afraid. The doctor really didn't know what to say until he heard the scratching at the door of his dog. He said, do you, you hear that scratching right there? That's my dog. I left him downstairs, but he's gotten impatient. He's come up and he hears my voice. Now, he doesn't know what's going on in this room, but he just knows I'm there. I'm here. He said, it's the same for you. I don't know everything that's going to happen there, but I do know that Jesus is there. The one who gave his life for you and me, the one who is the righteous judge, the one who's going to welcome us home. That's what makes all the difference. We're the only people on earth that are not afraid of our God. Think about it. Everyone else is afraid of their God or what he's going to do to them. We're not afraid because of what he's already done for us. And the last thing is the association. He said, to all that love his appearing. He's not the only one. We're in that group. We're in that group. We're, we're the ones that are looking for the return of Jesus. For you golfers, you're going to know the name Paul Azinger. I don't know if he's still on television or not. I haven't really looked, but in 1987, he was named the PGA Player of the Year. Six years later, he won the PGA Championship, and at the age of 33, he already had 10 tournament victories to his credit. But the next year, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he wrote of his experience, he said, a feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me. I'm going to die anyway, whether from cancer or for something else. It's just a question of when. Golf suddenly became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. As Azinger faced the possibility of his own death, he remembered what Larry Moody, who was a chaplain to the pro golfers, had said to him, Zinger, we're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying we're in the land of the dying trying to get to the land of the living. Blazinger beat cancer, and he recovered from chemotherapy and returned to the BGA Tour, and Azinger changed his perspective. He said, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour. I've won a lot of tournaments, but that happiness is always temporary. The only way I have ever found true contentment is in my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and I don't have problems, but now I have found the answer to the six-foot hole. He also said, I can honestly say I've never said, why me? There are two ways you can react to something like this. You can say, why me, God? Why me? Or you can do an about face and run to God and cling to him for your security and your hope. That's what I did. Folks, we're in a war. We're in a race. We have responsibility to keep the faith the battle's not going to last forever, and the race has a finish line. And this whole world is full of dangers, toils, and snares, as the song says.
but it's not going to last much longer. Somewhere out there is finish line. We want to finish strong. And the only way you can do that is to follow the path that God has for you. And that begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've never received him, you're not even in the race. That's the beginning place, not the church. Jesus Christ. You ask God to forgive you. You realize that you're separated from God. You realize that. You know that Jesus lived a sinless life. And the wages of sin is death. So someone had to die. That sinless God-man died for us. Rose again. And we're going to go to heaven on the coattails of Jesus by faith in him. He's our Savior. If you don't know him, you can know him right now. Let's pray. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 